It's November 28, 2022. This is Rook. Welcome to episode 219 of Rook, and a message to the sputtering regime in Iran. Go ahead, try to put everyone in jail. The talent of Iranians will prevail. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto. Salam, Dostan Aziz. Durud Bashama. We've all noticed the arrests keep coming, and an increasing list of impressive voices are detained. But we're also learning the creativity and intelligence of the Iranian people cannot be contained. Go ahead, try to put everyone in jail. The talent of Iranians will prevail. It's become part of our daily ritual now. Lamenting the latest news of a gifted person being seized by the regime? It's happening with such regularity, it no longer seems extreme. That is, often for almost no reason, the brutal apprehending of some of the most accomplished members of Iranian society. And the detentions come with the requisite trumped-up charges, beatings and torture and almost without exclusion, the threat and specter of execution. Perhaps it's no surprise. A regime so fearful of its own imminent demise, trying to eliminate any human being that it perceives as the enemy. What is the end game here? Arresting the whole country? Go ahead, try to put everyone in jail. The talent of Iranians is going to prevail. Because there are too many outstanding minds inside and outside of Iran. Because you cannot get rid of them all as much as you wish they were all gone. And every horrific new arrest is a chance to shed light on amazing individuals who deserve international fame. And every imprisonment gives us a chance to get the world to say their name. You know, in the mid-1970s, during the Cambodian genocide, the Khmer Rouge declared Year Zero as an attempt to eliminate all vestiges of any opposition and of their own national past. The idea was to cleanse the country of any intellectuals, urban creatives, or cultured professionals in order to enable the brainwashing of the citizens and to circumvent any threat to their power. Frankly, this Islamic Republic regime already did something like this itself back in the 1980s. But it's not working this time. Why? Because the bench is too strong, the list of talent too long, and this time most significantly unified Iranians won't get it wrong. Go ahead, try to put everyone in jail. The talent of Iranians will prevail. Just thinking about the remarkable abilities of many of those detained is to consider an A-team of creative and intellectual prowess. The great footballer, Voria Ghafouri. The great filmmaker, Jafar Panohi. The brave journalist, Nilofar Hamedi. The human rights activist, Majid Tabakoli. The women's rights leaders, Fatima Seperi and Nagis Mohammadi. Today, the sport journalist, Mehdi Amirpour, and our friend, Ali Asadolahi. These folks are some of the most resilient and remarkable citizens any nation could wish for. Their abilities and courage and actions continue to inspire. And yes, of course, in many cases the situations are dire. The courageous rapper Tumaj Salehi, who's now on death row. The civil activist Arash Sadiqi, who is in prison with cancer and denied medical treatment as we now know. It's maddening, it's outrageous, and yet, with each arrest, the battle against this regime grows more profound. With each detention of another beautiful mind, the opposition gains more ground. 
The explosion of creative art and song and expression is making its mark. The images of powerful women and girls on the front lines leading the Iranian people out of the dark. With each new arrest, there is new information about an individual who is the fabric of a rebirth of Iranian pride. With each injustice and detention, a new anger and energy animates our side. This will not be year zero. Not this time. The lessons have been learned. There's no denying the spirit and the perseverance of those who are concerned. We must spread the name of every innocent person this regime tries to break. We must amplify the memory of every citizen they want to forsake. Go on then. Try. Try to put everyone in jail. Because this time, the talent of the Iranian people will prevail. Coming up on this edition of Rook, Dr. Mahmoud Amidi Mogadam, Natasha Akunwe, Kusha Alakban, and Dr. Feridun Rahmani, plus our Rook Roundtable. This is Rook, episode 219, The Uprising. The talent of Iranians will prevail. Myself worked up with that uh, opening essay. <clears throat> Welcome, everybody. We are here in the uh, Rook Studio in Toronto. I've got um, our regular Rook Roundtable here for the uh, Uprising series. Pega, hello. Hello. Shy, hello to you. Hi, yes. Well, this is quite a show coming up. Uh, I'm, I'm really, really um, looking forward to talking to some pretty special guests we have. Dr. Mahmoud Amidi Mogadam. He's in Oslo. So let me explain. He's a um, he's a human rights activist. He's a professor. He's a neuroscientist. But he was one of the folks who did a submission, who spoke mm-hmm. at the UN special session uh, oh. that led to the resolution. So he's on the inside of all of that, a tireless human rights campaigner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he'll join us from Oslo, one of the key players. So we'll get an, um, maybe I'll push him a little bit on... Um, the efficacy of the the UN or mm-hmm. or lack thereof. Um, so he's coming up uh, first up in just a little bit. Natasha Kunwe is uh, an Iranian Nigerian mm-hmm. who was born in Germany, uh, lives in the States now, but significantly for the purposes of our program, was in Qatar all last oh. week. Uh, you know her from Clubhouse, I, I think, do, right? Yeah. So she uh, and she has quite a story to tell about how. You know, she went there, um, if I had the story correct, I know she was demonstrating for, uh, the, I mean, on, in support of the revolution, in support of uh, mm-hmm. uh, the uprising, wearing the Women, Life, Freedom t-shirt and mm-hmm. flying the flag, etc. cetera, um, and got into some trouble with Qatari yeah. authorities. Uh, and it, it's so valuable to get an inside perspective because well, obviously what we see on the TV mm-hmm. is... Um, a skewed version as we later go to the internet and you see all these things that (laughs) you didn't see on the Qatari feed on TSN in Canada. So Natasha Akinwe, who's just back from Qatar, will join us. Kusha Alakband, uh, our friend who returns to the show, uh, she's in California. She is, as you may know, um, she's a photographer, but she's also a um, a prolific and popular social media person. And she's been posting lately about how her posts have been either blocked Mm -hmm. or shadow banned or suppressed 
very conspicuously so. Anytime she talks about Iran in a certain political way, mm-hmm. uh, so uh, we'll have her to, uh, on to talk about that in uh, about an hour from now. And Dr. Feridun Rahmani, uh, at the end of the show in, in the Rook studio. He was with us about a month ago, yeah. I guess. Uh, he's a professor, a, an expert on Kurdish affairs, and um, he will be here, of course, to talk about the the latest um, very difficult news that continues to come out of Kurdistan yes. with, where the Iranian regime has basically launched war against uh, mm-hmm. the, the Iranian citizens in that region, Mahabad and um, Janrut. Yeah. Um, so before we get to all that, though, let's uh, catch up a little bit on mm-hmm. our regular Rook Roundtable on um, um, what's happened in the last few days since our last show last Thursday. And by the way, I did that opening essay about Google and Amazon and Apple. Got so much response about that. Yeah. I do want to follow that up. I didn't have a... I want to pull some ideas together with some folks before, but I really want to to uh, move that forward. Some action on how to get these giant corporations, mm-hmm. who are major power brokers internationally, to um, put their money or their resources or their support where their mouth is in terms of declaring that they're so pro human rights when it comes to other situations. Mm-hmm. Well, now in the Iranian context. Uh, come on then, uh, step up, right? So we'll talk about, uh, I guess, in the coming days. Uh, I, w- I want to talk about that. But um, um, l- otherwise, last Thursday where we left off was the UN special session. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, uh, <clears throat> of course, the, the resolution passed. Mm-hmm. We talked about that. And, and, and um, I noticed that uh, there was a response from Iran today. Quite a response. Uh, <laughs> I will bring this up with Dr. Mahmoud Amidi Mogaddam in a few minutes when he joins us from Oslo. But I think I have the quote. Uh, this is from Nasser Kanani or Kanani, uh, the foreign ministry spokesperson, says Tehran will quote no will have no form of cooperation with this political committee, which has been framed as a fact-finding committee, framed uh, and. They basically are going on to say this is all America and uh, Israel, and which, of course, is clearly bullshit because the 27 countries were mostly uh, non-Western countries. And mm-hmm. it's not how could it be an American conspiracy, right? Yeah, well, there's a there's a new country to hate now, and it's Germany. So a lot of the anger is is uh, being targeted towards Germany and for the regime to hate for the regime right, to yeah, hate. Yeah. yeah, and so funny enough, I don't know if you saw the photos and whatnot from that little press conference. But um, Kanani actually carried a black gas mask to the podium where he was speaking um, as a reminder of the use of the chemical weapons used by Saddam Hussein in the Iran-Iraq war, which famously um, the Islamic Republic says that was supplied by German companies and things like that. So it was quite the theatrical um, little presentation of his. And like you said, you know, I mean, and and we we anticipated this, but essentially their stance is they're not going to cooperate um, and that they have their own little... Um, their own little fact-finding right. committee. Uh, th- that's that, that'll be good. The regime will do an investigation. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. Uh, yeah. At some point, they said that about Mass Amini's death too, right? They were like, "Yeah, we're still waiting." We're for we, uh, we're really disturbed by this. We'll do an investigation. You know, thanks a lot. You know, like yeah. uh, we appreciate that. Yeah. 
Um, so, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll, we'll get more with uh, Dr. Amy Moradam, but um, any more fallout from the, the UN session you wanted to address? Um, nothing else to address. I think the, the biggest thing in the, in the last couple of days has just been Iran's response. Um, you know, like we just mentioned, their, their own committee that they've talked about um, is going to be compiled of representatives from the government, the judiciary, and the parliament. So I think, you know, just hearing that in and of itself is such a joke. There's, a, there's been a fair amount of distribution, too, of the of the six countries that voted no mm-hmm. uh, to the resolution, yeah. that which, none of which are really a surprise. No, uh, I mean China and Russia and Venezuela. Cuba and Venezuela, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but interestingly, after the UN like uh, Council, <laughs> maybe it's just co- coincidence, but we see some like. Um, like releasing some uh, prisoners or, you know, mm-hmm. we see some changes in the uh, regime's behavior. But, uh, I mean, maybe it's just... Close. That's what I want to ask. I mean, he, uh, Dr. Amin Mouradam is a, has been working on not just human rights issues, but human rights issues in Iran for a long time. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really curious whether he actually thinks the regime would... Uh, be moved by something I like don't this, think you know. So, but uh, I mean, this is some people saying on the social media that like, uh, don't be fooled by these mm-hmm. acts. Is because they, uh. like, yeah, yeah. Well, there's you know, just to add to that point, there's all these videos now that are coming out of Iran of. Um, members of, I don't know, the IRGC or the Basij or whoever and whatever you want to call it, coming up to young girls or young boys on the streets and giving them like candy and things like that. And we Mm. had seen it before where, you know, people who were protesting on the streets of Iran were doing that. So they're trying to use the same tactics and the same kind of social media outreach in in this (laughs) new campaign of theirs, I guess you could say. When they're not sending people, toothless people to the front rows of the (laughs) Qatar World Cup uh, game. So now we have official confirmation or, you know, there was that leaked tape that came out that shows that the regime paid for and sent oh, yeah. a bunch of people to go to that. I mean, we kind of knew this. Mm-hmm. And I'll speak to this Natasha Kunway who was there in Qatar, mm-hmm. whether she could tell that these, but um, but now it's a, a, a official as if we needed that, that yeah. uh, that the, the room is stacked, the, the paper, they papered the room that we used to say with concerts, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, let's paper the room. We're afraid that it's going to be, uh, it's not going to be sold out. Uh, so, so I, I mean, I kind of, I was approaching the show going, okay, we're doing this on Monday night. Uh, the, the the big game with the U.S. is tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's gonna a lot of a lot's gonna happen that we we can't really anticipate yet. So I want to almost park any more conversations about Team Melly in the sense that uh, it's sort of all over the place right now. There's there's a you know ongoing debate about should we support, shouldn't we support? People are flip, flip, flipping back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, we I. I've tried to be consistent about let's not get too distracted mm-hmm. uh, about what's going on in Iran by focusing on which team Melly player did mm-hmm. and didn't sing the anthem. Um, but I will say that um, I felt like the big news um, <clears throat> at the last game was not necessarily team Melly. Uh, of course, they won, and there was you know uh, we, there was a lot of dissection of the celebrations mm-hmm. after the goals, or wh- were they kneeling, or wh- what were they doing, or were they sing- really singing the anthem or not? But to me, the big news was just the the in- incredibly um, troubling crackdown by Qatari oh, yeah. authorities, oh, yeah. 
who you know clearly have got their marching orders mm-hmm. you know or whatever from their the the, the bromance with the Iranian regime yeah. where it's like and, and if I have this correctly I, again I'm sure I'll ask Natasha this but but not only are they suppressing um, based on FIFA's rules and you know any kind of political so-called political mm-hmm. uh, gesture on behalf of Iranian fans so there's you can't wear our Sahar that was there was wearing a, a woman like freedom t-shirt yeah. and she couldn't get into the stadium there's all um, but it seems to me that in some of the other games there are political mm-hmm. signs and stuff nobody's bothering about any no. of those this is this is specifically yeah. about Iran that's right it's so pathetic yeah and uh and 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 again such a strange twist of history that in this moment when this is happening in iran the fucking world cup is in qatar exactly anywhere else in the world and i mean it would be be an exposition yes yeah 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 um just to add what to what you were saying about you know other political um slogans or you know um expressions um at the i can't remember who morocco was playing but there was a game between morocco and someone and um some of the moroccan fans had a huge sign like spanning maybe the palestine one yeah Yeah, the palestine one exactly and you know so many people are posting that on social media and saying well this is a political you know slogan clearly yeah and yet there's no crackdown it's 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 at least as political as as flying the Shir Khorshid. Exactly. You know? it's not I would a, say more a political. flag that exactly. <laughs> no, I'm mean, being sarcastic. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, yeah. And the other thing is, um, you know, there's been hundreds of um, agents and actors from the Islamic Republic who have been sent over for these games, and the Iran Wales game was a clear indication of that. But there's now been reports that what we saw at that game is only going to be tripled if not yeah. tripled for the for yeah. the iran us game because they've actually actively been sending additional um forces to go there and be part of those supporters and not only to be part of the supporters but also to be the individuals who identify the people who are carrying oh yeah you no, know flags yeah. and yeah. wearing t-shirts and things like yeah, that yeah it's a it's a it's a and and of course the news came out about um the, the regime, the IRGC, uh, working with Qatari mm-hmm. author- authorities to ha- to keep a list right. of any Iranian nationals who came to watch the games, and I mean, it's just. Uh, uh, I mean, like last, uh, like couple hours ago, Ibrahim Raisi, the president of Iran, he officially thanks the Qatari government for wow. like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> these mm. kind of uh, as he com- should. They're doing <laughs> his yeah, uh, I bet he would doing his him. dirty work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and also, did you see the gym jump that happened? Uh, like. Uh, in a game of Portugal. Oh yeah, the the person who ran onto the pitch. Oh, I heard about. What do you call that? Gym jump. Gym jump. I mm. think it's it's called gym jump. Okay. I, don't know. I haven't heard that. <laughs> we, I mean, it used to be that people would run around with no clothes on, so yeah. they're called streakers. streakers. Yeah, uh-huh. but I guess this wasn't a streaker. This no, was he was actually wearing t-shirt that had numerous slogans on it. Right. So on the front it said "Save Ukraine." Um, with the Superman logo. On the back, it said respect for Iranian women, yeah. and he was carrying um, the pride flag. Right. An equal so, opportunity exactly. protester, yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. Any, anything more about the World Cup? I mean, I'm uh, uh, I'm tuned no. into some of the other games that I'm um, following <laughs> avidly, but uh, 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 and tomorrow, USA Team Melly. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, I, I, I should note, I mean, there's, there's so much... Um, difficult news and and troubling news when it comes to 
the issue of arrests and detain mm-hmm. detentions of and I, as I spoke about in my opening essay but once in a while something pops up that is a, a little bit heartening after a great deal of concern about uh, Hossein Renaki mm-hmm. uh, the dissident writer journalist blogger uh, he has surfaced out out of jail now yeah. uh, and in seemingly in okay health uh, there was a lot of concerns that he was meeting his end at the end with mm-hmm. that, that hunger strike and everything um, so that was somewhat heartening uh, over the last 24 hours I suppose yeah I mean you know the images that we've seen of him he's so frail and um, I think there was a video of him coming out of the hospital and even some of the nurses and the hospital staff and things like that they're kind of greeting him and and saying how they concerned they were for him and how happy they are that he's potentially on the road to to recovery Um, but I mean 64 days of being on hunger strike broken bones definitely you could see signs of obvious torture whether physical or mental and emotional um so you know i think he's got a he's still got a long road to recovery but just happy that he's at least outside the walls of the prisons but in the category of uh is there anyone who supports the regime other than people who are paid and um uh, uh, who work for the basis or sent to the world cup to um (laughs) <laughs> to do interviews about how women are equal in Iran, you know, the, the woman with a yeah, job that the, the, the lying. That, that one, the fire, yeah, you're a liar, yeah. went viral. <laughs> in the category of everybody else um, uh, supporting the uprising, did you see that the nurses were all thanking Hossein yeah, Ali and, they were and calling saying, him a hero. I mean, it's so interesting. In little moments like that, mm-hmm. you just see. The, I mean, they don't have to do that. They of don't course. have to, you know, I mean, it's clear where the will of the people is in situations like that. Well, not only do they not have to do that, but, you know, there had been reports of, um, you know, military forces coming into hospitals and kind of being that little fly on the wall and, and trying to look at which medical professionals were treating the individuals who were coming in from the protests and things like that. I mean, we've heard it time and time again where they've used ambulances to um, take protesters to undisclosed locations and prisons and things like that. So it's, you know, the manipulation of even yeah. the medical staff. Yeah. yeah. Related to your essay, actually, um, today I read the news that Mahmoud Shahriar, he's a very famous uh, TV, t- television host in Iran, uh, it was like Mahmoud Shahriyari was released from the prison and I was like wow this poor guy was arrested two months ago but right, right. St- yeah. and that they arrested yeah. people so you yeah, mm-hmm. you yeah. lost even someone like Jafar Panahi we, yeah, we just for, yeah I mean he would be uh, yeah. in, in any other time it yeah. would be a, a major story you yeah. know these uh, I mean but it's at this point it's it's just a yeah. A collection of wealth of talent that are removed from the scene for now um, by this by this regime. Some of whom, too, when there's some really really sad stories that emerge uh, when people have been put in prison. This has happened a few times now, especially with young people who then come out yeah. and commit suicide once they're outside of oh. prison. You and you think about what this kid must have gone mm-hmm. through, this 16-year-old, or when they're in, in prison, to want to take their own life as soon as they're released. Um, do you want to fill us in on this, the latest one? Yeah, I mean, just hearing that story, like you said, it, there's no shortage of atrocities that we've seen come out of you know the last two months. But like you said, every now and again, you hear one of these stories, and it just it, it's just a punch to the gut more than anything else. And so, Arshia Imam Ghalizadeh, who was 16 years old, Um, He was originally detained for knocking a cleric's turban off his head, as we've seen become 
you know, quite viral videos coming yeah. out of Iran with, with um, young people doing this now. And so originally he was detained for, for doing that. Uh, and once he was detained, within 24 hours, he was taken to a juvenile detention center because he was only 16 years old. Um, he was kept there for 10 days um, without any contact to family, without any right. sort of legal proceedings, nothing. 10 days of absolute silence. Right. Um, and then he was released on bail. And, you know, most places in the world you would think, okay, well, sigh of relief there. But what ended up happening is that when he was released, um, he was, I guess, battling some major demons. And he mentioned to his family that uh, while he was in detention for those 10 days, he was given pills that he didn't know what they were every night. Um, he was beaten and tortured every night repeatedly. And this just weighed so heavily on him and his family that his family decided to seek medical attention. So they took him to a psychologist. Um, at that point, he was prescribed antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication. But within a few days of being prescribed those medications, he actually committed suicide yeah. by overdose. And his crime was horsing around and, and yeah. a 16-year-old having some fun with the the, the, the mullah's cap, whatever, you know? I mean, it's... Uh, um, you know, just some of these kids, too, uh, the teenage girl that, that, that took her own life mm -hmm. uh, a couple of weeks ago, you know that they're... Um, they're actually extraordinary in some cases. They're quite brave. You know, they've done something that, that lands them in jail. Mm -hmm. So imagine what they... how What they're put through, how they're tortured to want to take their own life when they come out. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's it's profoundly sad. Now, in, in terms of the jail situation, there there's the detentions and then there's death row. Then mm -hmm. there's the people who are uh, set to be executed. Yeah. And the Tumaj Salehi, mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the rapper uh, mm -hmm. who um, was outspoken against the regime and First was a, a big story because he was arrested. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, there was evidence that he had been harmed and, and there was the forced confession and That's all right. of that. Then there was the where's too much. Now, from what I understand, mm -hmm. without having access to a lawyer, mm -hmm. he's had a quote unquote trial. That's right. And been put on death row. Yeah. Sentenced to execution, right? Yeah. So they indicted him on the charge of corruption on earth. That, that's part of one of the, the charges. And um, that whole corruption on earth, quote unquote, is a capital offense in Iran. And that's actually what they're using to set the precedence for him being on death row. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's obviously sham trials. There's no lawyers present. Right. There's no representation. There's nothing. Corruption so, on earth, yeah. too. I mean, they can't even come up with a good... Uh, no. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> that's what it means? Corruption on earth? What does that mean? He's a mofsed fel arz. means like he's... Uh, he's corrupting people yes. saying yeah. saying corrupting in the earth well it's yeah so there's a there's a lot of concern about him mm -hmm. and it's interesting to me uh, I, I don't know I don't know these things I just talk to a bunch of people and, and hear get the and try and figure out the aggregate of what mm -hmm. whatever what everybody's telling me uh, but you know with someone like Hossein Ronari you gotta think I mean it's hard not to think that the regime realized if this guy dies, mm -hmm. it's it's even for a regime that doesn't care about PR, it's not going to be helpful for us. Yeah. It's interesting with the case of Too Much Salahi. I, I mean, I, 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 I can't figure this regime out uh, 
because you can't sort of think from an ethical standpoint. Because I remember with Nabi Dakari, mm-hmm. once once that started to become a, a major cause, international, you know, uh, a concern. I was thinking, ah, they're not going to execute them. I mean, mm-hmm. that would be that would a that would be a crazy yeah. thing to do. And they went and did it and did yeah. it. You know, so um, I don't know. W- w- do we have any sense of w- what's going to happen with Tumaj? There's just no logic, and like you no. said, there there's no way to figure them out. I mean, you know, we've seen <clears throat> recently this. Um, I guess it's like a campaign almost of freeing all, not all, but a bunch of big names like Hossein Ronaghi and you know and we're seeing things like that but you at the end of the day it's almost like I'm expecting that it's a ploy of some sort I, I can't you know take a sigh of relief just because Hossein Ronaghi was released to go to the hospital to be yeah. treated you know I, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop no and by the way I mean this is uh, even when I was writing the essay t- for today about uh, um, all the prominent and, and significant creative and intellectual and um industrious people that uh, have been jailed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I also somewhat feel bittersweet about talking about them because even that's a distraction right. from killing people in, mm-hmm. in Balochistan and, and, and Kurdistan and places where the attention isn't going to be, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, there's some, some kind of weird, like, you know, how we possibly, I mean, this is partly the problem of the regime too how do they put out all the fires mm-hmm. at once how do we keep our attention on yep. everything i mean if mm-hmm. we focus on too much you know there's also people being massacred and right. so it's it's so hard and so confusing but with someone like him it's um it's really heartbreaking because I, I keep thinking of he put that video out saying I think I'm gonna get mm-hmm. hey yeah. guys you know I'll probably get yeah. arrested sometime soon and um, just the courage and the um, the accessibility of 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 what he was doing mm-hmm. in terms of spreading information about yes. the the regime uh, it's it's a really really um, sad story and and here's hoping that uh, his uh, that all the voices that are trying to save him will mm-hmm. somehow make a difference yeah, speaking of no logic the reason that they are releasing some prisoners is really i mean sad and funny at the same time the reason is that because iran beats wales so as a gift we release it's official i mean really wow yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. like the mahmoud shahriari they release him as a gift that iran beats wales so we I don't even have words for no, that. Yeah. Pretzel logic. Um, before I, we get to our first guest, uh, one thing that I thought was really interesting, um, especially given if you remember in the beginnings of the, the, the uprising, so if we you know, go back 10 weeks, mm-hmm. uh, nine weeks, um, I can't remember who it was, but one of our, um, I think it was an academic we had on who was saying, here are the steps to a, uh, a revolution, yeah. and one of the significant ones Bourgeois, is yeah. oh, it was So I should remember, Professor Bourgeardi was saying one of the big chips that needs to fall is there needs to be strikes, mm-hmm. there needs to be worker action, and and so we and we'd seen a little little bit of it here and there, yeah. but this past week is you know see, watching workers march together uh, alongside each other on strike mm-hmm. is very powerful. 
Yeah. yeah, some of those videos were incredible to see. Um, I think it was the steel workers. There was a video um, that went viral with all of them just, you know, walking, marching together. Um, and like you said, there were so many strikes that took place. Um, some of the biggest ones and some of the biggest strikes in the last two months actually took place just this past weekend. Um, you saw the truck drivers and truck owners in many cities across the country who just refused to move their vehicles and um, basically just stopped entire neighborhoods mm, by yeah. you know parking their cars um and then you saw the the individuals refraining from moving goods in support of the protests we saw sit-ins we saw um you know strikes like you said and it was in so many different places and it happened all at once so you know some of the places that i was taking note of there was um, strikes in esfahan in Bandarabos, in ghazvin in kermansha and this is all from you know various industrial workers um there was the truck drivers union like all of them got together and you know just the unity that we saw again yeah. was amazing and it's interesting that the it's a reminder that the revolution a revolution but this revolution um asserts itself in different ways mm -hmm. it doesn't only have to be uh 300,000 people on the street in That's Tehran right. at once you know mm -hmm. it's 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 chipping away in a, in a death of a thousand cuts you might say from all mm -hmm. kinds of yes. different different ways that people are chipping away at this regime this is huge though it's really big if it continues yeah. if it if that kind of action continues well, actually, or grows one thing i forgot to say about the truck drivers union they're actually calling for a 10 day work stoppage so i don't know if this is actually going to prevail or not but on saturday um, some members from the truck drivers union and i i don't know which city it was in exactly but um, there's all these there's these memos and these posts and these things circulating um, calling for a 10-day stoppage and if that actually happens to have 10 consecutive days of a strike like that I mean it would be it would be monumental mm. if anything yes. and you're already hearing actually the regime is offering some of these truck drivers fuel reserves which is you know and if if team melly beats the u.s <laughs> well, no, they will they're offer <laughs> they're actually already I mean, um offering fuel reserves and pardon the pun but it fuels the fire because now the truck drivers are saying well if you had these fuel reserves mm. where were they you know months and months ago when we were suffering yeah. if you had them and you didn't give them to us well now if you're doing it just so that we stop and go back to work no See? The I, I think the strikes were a big deal yeah yeah if, really if, if, if that if that grow, uh, you know if that continues I mean juxtaposed onto uh, the really, really, really um, sad, alarming situation in Kurdistan mm. uh, with the tanks going in there over the last week and all of that, which we will get to with Dr. Faridun Rahmani before the end of the show as well. Um, it, it was there's there's little little moments of positive news for mm. for those who uh, of us who want to see change. Okay, should we get to our our yes. guests? I think yeah. we're going to go to Oslo first. Thank you, Pega. Thank you. Thank you, Shia. Uh, and let us go to our first guest in Oslo, Norway. Dr. Mahmoud Amidi Moradam is a Norwegian-Iranian neuroscientist and human rights advocate. He is a professor in medicine and the head of the Laboratory of Molecular Neuroscience at the University of Oslo. He is also the co-founder and spokesperson for the NGO Iran Human Rights, which monitors the violations of human rights in Iran. He was at that UN session we've been talking about for the last few days last week week and he joins me from Oslo right now. Hello, sir. Hello. Uh, good to be with you. 
It's a good pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for doing this. I know you're busy. I'm sure you've got, you're being pulled in a lot of directions. Um, first of all, um, Dr. Amiri Mogadam, as someone who works in the human rights space in general, can you just tell me how, in general, you've been processing uh, the last two months of what's been happening in Iran? Well, you know, when, when the protest started, uh, we didn't know that it's going to be so um, extensive and uh, and long lasting. Uh, I remember that you know you know Iran human rights has been covering uh, other protests. We have been documenting human rights violations, the way Iranian authorities uh, faced the protesters, and this time it started the same way by shutting down the internet or putting uh, restrictions on it and shooting at the people. Normally, they used to get control uh, within a few days or a week, but this time was different. So uh, I have never seen so much so much determination among ordinary people, you know, young people, schoolboys, schoolgirls, elderly, all over the country. And despite the fact that the Iranian authorities have been, you know, shooting at the people with uh, live ammunition, between four and five hundred people have been killed, among them fifty to sixty children. But they are still out protesting. What we have been doing is trying to document as much as possible of what is going on, because the reason why the authorities shut down the internet is because they don't want the world to see what they are doing yeah. with peaceful protesters. And they want to tell Iranian people that nobody hears your voice and we can do whatever we want to them, to you. So this is, uh, I think, uh, what we are trying to uh, prevent, trying to give people in Iran a voice and also document the atrocities. Mm. I want to get to the UN session, but in terms of documenting atrocities, um, you've you've written about, talked about what's happening in Kurdistan and Balochistan uh, um, as being crimes against humanity. We've talked about it here, uh, massacres. Uh, but it's it's actually hard to get empirical information about what's what's happening. Do you have any update in in terms of what we saw in Mahabad and Kurdistan uh, by the end of last week? Do, do you have any update over the weekend of what's going on there? Well, you know, um, it's completely true. It's it's very difficult because, uh, I mean, there are two factors. One of them is uh, the Internet situation. You know, sometimes in some of the towns, it's not even possible to make a phone call. They shut it completely down in, in, uh, uh, in some areas. And the other thing is that families are threatened. They are threatened not to talk to human rights organizations, not to write about what happens, and and uh, it makes it difficult, and uh, and that's why it it takes longer time for us to be able to confirm some of the reports. But uh, we have seen that in the last, let's say, ten days, most of the people killed on the streets of Iran uh, have been uh, killed in the Kurdish uh, Kurdish towns. And before that, it was Baluchistan, and and uh, so so we are still working on it. I think um, we will be issuing a new statement uh, probably by um, by Tuesday, twenty ninth, 
uh, with an update. So our team is working on it right now. In terms of um, in terms of the, the the gravity of what's happening here, uh, can you put this into some perspective? I mean, when we talk about live ammunition, we've seen these horrific videos for that video that came out last week of of shooting in a in a metro, just shooting shooting people, and certainly what we've seen uh, in Kurdistan and Balochistan, uh, people running, explosions, live am- ammunition. There's um, been a fair amount of uh, reporting on chemical weapons. Uh, this is um, this is feels like next level stuff in terms of uh, uh, crimes against humanity. Um, there are dictatorships, there are uh, um, horrific events that happen in a war, but in terms of inside a country's own borders, um, this type of activity, uh, does it, I mean, not to sound trite, but does it get much worse than this in terms of what has happened throughout history? Well, well, you're completely right. You know, we are talking about ordinary people, uh, and you probably have seen, uh, I mean, protesters are angry, but they are shouting, let's say, freedom. They are maybe burning their hijab. And, but but the, the, the oppressive forces, I used to call them security forces, but they are not security forces. The oppressive forces, they shoot. And uh, you probably have seen, you know, there are children who were in the car with their parents who have been shot. It's, it's so indiscriminate the way they uh, so what they are trying to do is spread fear sometimes they come to uh, a neighborhood and start shooting at the walls at the windows there are people who have been shot inside their homes and uh, um, and on the other side you have basically defenseless People. Many of them are you know young people asking for their fundamental rights so, we we want to believe that it can't get worse, but uh, we should keep in mind that we are dealing with a regime that uh, probably is capable of and willing to go much further. Uh, in 2011, it was the Iranian Revolutionary Guards uh, uh, which helped Bashar Assad to survive, you know, before ISIS coming. So so they although they are. Mm, incompetent in solving people's daily problems. Mm. They have a long experience in mass killing and uh, we are very concerned. So I'm very, I would say that it gives us hope that the international community finally has uh, started to do more than uh, expressing concern and uh, condemnations. Okay, let me get again. I want to get to that UN session, which which you actually spoke at. But, but just before we get there, in terms of um, the efficacy of what the regime is doing, and you say you you said earlier you you uh, intimated that, that you know that there's a playbook. I mean, like with Aubon, turn off the internet and then massacre people, shoot at people to deter any more uh, protests. In terms of the efficacy this time around. It doesn't. Um, well, you tell me. Uh, you you've you've made a, a really powerful is uh, an educational video uh, where you talk about the death penalty being used as a tool to spread fear in societies. 
do you actually? I mean, we famously now, infamously heard about the uh, the the Majlis uh, recommending to the judiciary that people should be executed for protesting. The death penalty is hanging out there. People are being um, put on death row. Do you actually? Do you feel it's working in the context of Iran today? That that type of fear and suppression, given that the protests continue. Um, so so. You know, this is how the the regime has managed to survive in so many years. I mean, we have been following the issue of death penalty in Iran day by day in the last 15 years or more than that. And uh, what we see is that whenever they fear protests, they increase the number of executions. Actually, they have been expecting protests uh, in the last few months, you know, before the protest actually started. So since May uh, 2022, Iranian authorities have executed two to three people every single day across Iran to maintain this barrier of fear. Right. However, what happened to uh, you know Gina Masamini? I think it uh, it triggered something inside millions of Iranians that they just came out. And they were so angry and they were so determined that uh, I feel that this barrier of fear has fallen. That's why people are on the streets. However, Iranian authorities know it very well that from the past experience of, uh, you know, 40 years ago, that mass executions, they are probably their solution. And this is also another of our concern because we know that Thousands of people have been arrested. Many of them have been sentenced. Uh, you know, they are facing charges punishable by death. And uh, so so we are concerned that they might do something like that again. But the society is not the same as it was before. It can also have a backlash mm. that can also make people even more angry and uh, um, accelerate the fall of the regime. So this is something that I'm sure they have in the back of their head. Tell me about the the UN Human Rights Council special session last week. Um, uh, you were there. First of all, in general terms, I'll ask you about your the comments that you made in a moment. But in general terms, what was the atmosphere like? You know, I have been to to the UN um, uh, Human Rights Council. Uh, many times in the last 11 years and uh, have had some uh, statements there and they have been voting, but have, have never seen something like this. First of all, I have never seen so many countries uh, supporting the Iranian people's cause with the words they were using. Um, and so few countries voting no to a resolution against Iran. You know, they were just six countries. And once the, um, the voting was done and it was clear that uh, the resolution uh, has enough votes, they started uploading. I have never seen that. So there was, you know, there was feeling of that. This is, there is, the history is being written now. I think many countries, they feel relieved that the, finally the institution that they have been part of, the United Nations, is doing more than what they normally do, because unfortunately, you know, because of the composition of the Security Council, UN hasn't been able to 
help people when the help is needed. And if you look at the past, normally they come into the picture when it is very late. Mm -hmm. So this time, as people are on the street in Iran, as the atrocities are going on, they manage to take one step in the right direction. And and this is a, you know, a step that has practical consequences. So we will we were really touched. I'm so glad that the Iranian people's voice was heard and it had such a huge impact on most of the world. How, how did you decide? You had a short uh, time that you're allotted for, for you to personally speak. How did you decide what you were going to speak about? Um, you know, I normally what we do what human rights organizations do is to give uh, you know numbers and uh, just to underline how serious the the situation is but i really wanted to say some of their names you know names behind these numbers and and uh, i was not in doubt whose names i wanted to to say because uh, as you, you you mentioned you know in baluchistan one of the most marginalized parts of iran with poverty they have been i would say they have been uh, neglected in so many years and in their first big protests about 100 people were shot on the streets among them children so i wanted to say some of their names because you know many of them they don't even get the Iranian national ID documents yeah. and saying their names, it meant a lot for me. And uh, I really hope that uh, their families have heard it. Uh, we have received feedbacks that, you know, people in Baluchistan, they have written to me that uh, just hearing a little part of what we have been going through at the UN and hearing our names meant so much. Dr. Amiri Mogadam, you you actually wanted to show photos too, but you they they didn't allow you to. Yes, so I had uh, three photos of uh, you know Khodanur Lejei, the twenty seven year old Baluchman. Uh, I talked about uh, Hastinarui, six year old girl, and and Samer uh, Hashem Zahi, fourteen year old boy. I had the pictures, and uh, before my talk. Uh, they say that we are not allowed to show pictures, and and this is a rule they have uh, at the UN, and um, so I, I I I was risking to not be able to talk, so I took a picture uh, afterwards just to, and I showed the pictures to others around, uh, but I say their names, and I and I think it's very important to say the names. When you talk about it being. Um, heartening or energizing that the number of countries that voted for this um, um, investigation and, and uh, voted for the motion. Uh, did you end up having conversations with people from uh, representatives of other countries and uh, especially those who were in favor of the proposition and, and what were those conversations like? Well, um, I had conversation with some of them, but but uh, these were countries that ha had been pushing for the resolution, and uh, you know they were all um, um, moved by the what that's they were by the bravery of Iranian people, by by the women, uh, everyone who who had been standing against you know one of the 
I would say, most dangerous regimes. Uh, you know, they have been using uh, extensive violence, but they still come out and. Uh, uh, and what they want is living a normal life, wanting the fundamental human rights. And it had moved so many of them. So it wasn't just, you know, political statements. Mm. You could see it, even in the face of uh, the politicians that it was more than that. Um, uh, and, and about the voting, uh, you know, another historical part was that for the first time, number of countries from the global south voting yes to such a resolution against the Islamic Republic was higher than the number of Western countries. Mm. So unlike what the Iranian authorities claim that this is you know, a plot from the West, right. actually the number of countries from Asia, Africa and uh, Latin America was higher than the Western countries. How do we how do we interpret abstentions in these uh, votes for resolutions? Uh, there were there were famously the twenty seven countries that voted for it. There was the six, as you've mentioned, that voted against, and we can sort of eyeball that and understand politically why they're voting against. But but what what do what does it mean when these countries abstain? I mean, like they really don't want to take a stand on this. Well, um, some of them. Under normal circumstances, they would have voted no. So the fact that some of them actually decided to abstain is also a declaration, I would say, a declaration of support that it is, you know, the situation is so bad that they can't do what they have been doing. So, so also abstentions send a signal. Of course, some countries in close proximity to, uh, to the Islamic Republic, uh, you know, some of them are afraid. They are afraid of the consequences. Hmm. Some of them have uh, relations that uh, you know they want to. They don't want to lose or benefits they don't want to lose. But uh, I think some of the uh, you know the low number of no's uh, it showed that even some of the countries that uh, normally both know they didn't want to be. Um, Part of the shame list because it was really a shame list. Mm. I, I met, you know, one of the countries that voted no. Of course, you know, we don't expect that Russia or China right. or Venezuela um, vote uh, yes to such a motion. But uh, even Pakistan, who who is very, you know, it has been a close ally. Even I met some Pakistanis who were just didn't understand why does our government vote no to something like this. It's about fact-finding mission, finding out what is going on on the, on the ground. Mm. Why did they yeah. vote no? Let me ask you a question, and I, I, I preface it with a disclaimer to say that there's, I mean this as no measure of disrespect to you and other folks who worked so hard to get this um, on the floor of the UN and, and, and the resolution passed. But for people who are listening around the world and who can be quite cynical about what we've seen the UN do uh, and not do in the past, um, what does this really mean? Okay, there was a vote. I mean, so um, um, how is this going to actually practically help the people uh, on the streets of Iran. That's a very good question. So, so first of all, we should keep in mind that it's people on the streets of Iran who who are going to do the main job. Uh, nobody from outside, and especially not UN. But 
what happened uh, last week at the UN, it, it has two important parts. One is the symbolic part that it sends a very strong signal to the Iranian authorities that you will be held accountable. We are watching and it increases the political cost of what the regime is doing with the people. As I say, that's why they shut down the Internet. They don't want to pay this high uh, price. Uh, and they also at the same time. Sorry, how, how, sorry how, how does it increase the political cost? I mean, what, 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 what does the regime care that somebody that, uh, you know, um, the U.S. voted for this resolution? Um, so, so you see, uh, I think most dictators, and, and especially uh, now the Islamic Republic, they don't want the world to talk about them, to talk about the atrocities. I can tell you, in the last 40 years, the few times they have been forced to make, uh, to step back or to make slight improvements in the um, uh, situ situation of human rights, it has been because of the uh, high political costs. Mm. The latest mm -hmm. one was in 2017 when they were forced to change the law for uh, the, the anti-narcotic law, uh, which led to a strong decrease in the number of executions. The fact that they don't do stoning of women anymore, although it is in the law, it is also the high political price. Mm. Because the uh, Iranian regime still wants to maintain some kind of relations with the world. They depend on it. And they know that if they do things like this, no country will be willing to deal with them. Uh, just the few countries that vote uh, no, and, and this is where it's going. So this is the political cost that uh, they know that the world cannot close its eyes on such atrocities and it will cost the, the Iranian regime. But there are also practical parts of this, uh, this uh, resolution and that's uh, a fact-finding mission. So this fact-finding mission, it um, maybe, you know, Iran is not, uh, the Islamic Republic is not going to co cooperate with them, but it obliges the UN to put resources in documenting what is going on. You know, the, the work that human rights organizations like Iran Human Rights is doing now, much of it will be done by the UN they, they are going to have a large number of staff working specifically on what is going on during this protest. They are obliged to give report and the evidence that they collect, it can be used to put those responsible for the atrocities on trial. So, so it, it is a, an actual, uh, you know, practical step. Uh, so Iranian regime sees that it will have more consequences, you know, beyond the condemnation and mm. just uh, increasing the political cost. Can I ask, let me ask you about the fact-finding mission. I'm, I'm so grateful that I get this opportunity to ask somebody who um, is there and, and can, can understands the implications of all of this because, um, and again, not to be overly cynical or not to be, not to be disrespectful um, of the people who work so hard to get this resolution passed, but one of the conversations that we were having about the fact-finding mission, about the investigation, and one of the things I hear from people um, who talk about it, who are, who 
are less than enthusiastic or I guess who are just so desperately uh, upset about what's happening in Iran is um, there's people dying today you know, in in Iran, what does a fact setting up an investigation where we still have to put together the tools of who it's going to be, who's going to be doing it, how they're going to be doing it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we already kind of know the facts. We know what this regime has been doing, what it's capable of. Um, how does this investigation, which um, obviously in some cases is done in retrospect, you know, there's a murder, let's do a fact finding to find out what happened. Um, in terms of the real-time uh, Im- immediacy, emergency of what's happening in Iran, how do we square that with an investigation that um, seems like it could take some time to even get going? Yes, but, but we should keep in mind that it's not uh, only in retrospect because it's actually happening right now. So um, I, I think that on the ground, there are certainly some people who would think twice, you know, if, if you imagine the, the contrary, let's say that the world didn't care and they could do actually whatever they wanted, I think they would have gone much, much further. We all remember in uh, uh, in the 80s, you know, I, I, I was a little kid. Uh, I remember, uh, in, I think it was in June 1981, there were protests and they used to show pictures of protesters they had arrested and executed overnight Mm. without identifying their names. They can't do it now because the world is watching. And I think uh, when the world is not only watching, but is actually collecting evidence to put them on trial, I think it will have some kind of preventive preventive effect. Um, Maybe not on the supreme leader of the Islamic Republic, Khamenei, or, you know, the top guys. But I think those on the ground, uh, there are many who will think twice that, okay, now we are working for a regime that the whole world is now standing against. Mm. People don't want it. And uh, cr- uh, committing crime against humanity, you know, they can actually be, in, be put on trial as long as they live. So so I think that, I mean, one thing is, of course, justice. The, the first step towards justice is this kind of fact-finding missions. You know, when, let's say, after the change of the regime, when there is, a, um, a, uh, when we are going to have transitional just, justice, the fact-finding machine is the first step, and this has already started. Um, but then uh, the other one is, a preventive effect that we hope uh, uh, will be a result of this uh, um, this UN action. One of our one of our guests, I should add, one of our guests last week was also talking about the ripple effect of something like this UN session means that outside actors that would have considered doing business with this regime or other countries or other institutions or whatever uh, now think twice, right? Absolutely, and and I think you know it's. Uh, it's a shame, I think, once United Nations have with such a huge vote decided that what is going on in Iran now are serious human rights crimes. I don't think any of those countries will be willing to uh, have a deal with this regime. 
So, so it makes them uh, even more under pressure. It puts them even more under pressure. So, I mean, right now you have, there are very few countries that actually uh, can do it and they, and they are themselves uh, in some kind of trouble. So uh, you, you, I'm sure you're aware, of course, that, that we, to, as of today, have an official response from the uh, Islamic Republic about the UN session. This is uh, the foreign ministry spokesperson, Nasser Kanani, said, um, no form of cooperation with this political committee, which has been framed as a fact-finding committee. Uh, I, I'm, I'm imagining you're not surprised by this reaction from Tehran. No, absolutely not. I mean, unfortunately, this is uh, this is their uh, normal rhetoric. You know, we have had uh, eleven years with the UN Special Rapporteur, and they have not cooperated with him. Uh, with all the three rapporteurs that have been there, none of them have been able to enter the country. Uh, we are not surprised, and of course, the reason we know what the reason is why they don't cooperate because. They know that the extent of the crimes they have committed is so much larger than uh, a fact-finding mission from outside, uh, based on reports from the uh, human rights groups uh, can find. So, of course, they will not cooperate. Uh, but what else can they say? Uh, but I can tell you uh, and, and the listeners that even this time, when they started saying that uh, it's a political uh, uh, mission, they couldn't. They really can't even um, defend it in front of their own supporters because most of the countries, uh, or or there were larger number of countries from non-Western part of the world. Uh, so it's not you know a Western plot against uh, the Islamic Republic. They are committing these crimes, and uh, the world couldn't simply close its eyes. Dr. Amiri Mogadam, I'm so uh, grateful uh, for the time that you're, you've given us today and, and um, for, for the, the inspiration and the education. Um, a final question to you before I let you go, and this is, um, let me ask you to take off your professional hat as uh, the spokesperson for Iran Human Rights and as, as someone who's been doing this work and does press interviews, etc. And just on a personal level, as somebody who's worked in this space and who is aware of these kind of dictatorships and uh, who's been watching Iran for a long time, um, with a personal interest as well, of course. Um, what, what is your gut sense of, of where things are going in Iran? We want so badly to believe that we're going to see the fall of this regime uh, uh, sooner rather than later. Are we, are we, um, is that a fantasy or is that something that's going to come to fruition? Um, I strongly believe that there is no way back. The, what I would call the revolution of dignity has started. It might take time. We don't know how long or how short, but there is no way this regime is going to to survive. You know, we are talking about probably the biggest human rights movement or revolution of our time, which will have impact way beyond Iran's borders. There are millions of women across the world who are being treated as second-degree citizens, either by law or in practice. The world has been talking about, you know, empowering them, 
now they are empowered. They have stood up along with the man and they want to create a society that respects its citizens. We have minorities who have been treated and who have, uh, who have been considered as secondary, uh, second degree citizens. They are, they feel empowered and they have stood up. I don't think you can just uh, undo what has happened in the last few weeks. And I think we are heading towards something really big with a huge impact. I thank you so much. I look forward to chatting again. Merci, Thanks for this today. Thank you so much. Thank, it's a pleasure being on your show. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Rook, episode 219, The Uprising. The talent of Iranians will prevail. For all things Rook-related, by the way, you can go to our website, rookmedia.com, rookmedia.com, which is also where you can go to support us and become a patron of Rook. Uh, If you appreciate what we do, we crowdsource to stay alive, so just go to our website, rookmedia.com, and on the front page it says, Support Us. And it'll lead you through there. Uh, I want to go to California next and and to Natasha Akunwe. She is an Iranian-Nigerian social worker and professor at Cal State living in the U.S. She was in Qatar all last week where she was attending the World Cup, the Iran matches, and being very open about her mission to support the uprising in Iran and women life freedom. Natasha Akunwe joins me right now from San Jose, California. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. You're back on uh, Terra Firma. You're, ba- you're, ba- you're back in North America now. Um, t- tell me about the decision to go to the World Cup in Qatar. You know, to be honest, it was really last minute. Um, I had a group of friends that were going. Um, they had gone to Russia uh, for the previous World Cup, and they just said, come, it's going to be a lot of fun. And this was uh, this was before things were starting to heat up a lot um, in Iran. So I think it was about three months ago, four months ago that I decided to go. And it was on a whim. And I just said, okay, I'm going. And booked my ticket and uh, started planning. I mean, there's even before the the uprising, the revolution uh, in Iran, there was a lot of questions around human rights issues in Qatar and uh, um, the, the ethics of even attending. Was that something that concerned you? You know, I I really didn't hear about all of the, you know, the issues with the migrant workers building the stadiums and all that until much later, just to be honest. Um, And there's there's issues everywhere. And I I, I'm the kind of person where I I pick and choose my battles. Um, You know, there's there's Nike with the, you know, the labor camps. We have Shein with their 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 laboring, you know, manufacturing and you know, you can't boycott everything. And I think that you can sometimes go to these events or um, make statements, um, you know, uh, at these at these events. And that's kind of, you know, what I tried to do. Um, 
is kind of mesh both of them together without without boycotting. Right. Well, so let me ask you about that. When you so you have tickets, you're going to Qatar. You got your plane ticket. You got World Cup tickets. Then what happens in Iran begins to happen, uh, and uh, that certainly affected the the way Iranians, as you know, have been seeing the World Cup and certainly the relationship with Team Meli. Did you, when was the decision made in you that, okay, I'm still going to go, but this is going to be, as you just said, an opportunity for me to express my views? Yeah, there was a lot of backlash um, for those who decided to still go and, and support the uh, the Iranian team, Team Meli, and uh, especially just a lot of Iranians that, um, that you know, on social media um, that I'm friends with, you know, they, they don't support Team Meli. Um, they, they don't think the team has done enough to stand with the women of Iran. Um, and for me, I, I try to look at all the information before making my decision. And I think that, you know, it's their job. It's their job to be soccer players, um, just like it's my job to be a social worker and feed my family and, you know, and take care of take care of business. And I can't even imagine what type of pressure they might be under um, from the government um to protect their families and you know it's it's a big ask to say hey quit your job join the movement um and that's the only way we will support you so that was kind of my take on it um i think that you can do your job make a statement um and still 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 show support um so that's kind of the angle that i that i you know approached uh, the team with and i i still support the team um as soccer players and um, you know, uh, there's so much information that we don't know. Um, and that's kind of where I stand with so, it. So let me, let me come back to that because that's, uh, that's an interesting position that you have and, and, and something I can, I can, I'll, I'll probably push back on a little bit, but, but do first of all, I mean, uh, tell me about the atmosphere of the first game because uh, the first Iran game that is, because we had, um, Saharon last week, uh, a football analyst, also Iranian from Britain, and she had gone to Qatar and she had gone wanting to sort of uh, demonstrate support for for um, the Iranian, the revolution and the young people in Iran at the f- uh, front lines of it. And she said that in the first few minutes of that game, she actually wanted to book a ticket and get the hell out of Qatar. She felt so alone and, and people were kind of jeering her for uh, there was pro-regime or pro-Team uh, um, Ali folks who were kind of uh, taking umbrage or, or picking on her. And and then she kind of found a community there of other people who were um, uh, supporting freedom in Iran, et cetera, and flying different flags and uh, in some cases still cheering for Team Meli, but with a different uh, kind of approach. Uh, did you go through that kind of um, uh, mix of emotions when you were actually there so for the first game um the first game was beautiful uh i think it actually depends on the section that you were in in the stadium um but for the from my observation um and the people that i was with for that game uh there were there there were a lot of um regime supporters but there it appeared that there were more people with just flags that said iran or shia Farshid flags um and there there was a movement so we i mean we were chanting during that game um you know uh Massa, when when they started chanting for massa amini i had goosebumps it was so loud it 
it was coming from it seemed like it was coming from everywhere it seemed like everybody was was on the same page and i was like wow this is amazing mm. to witness this um we did zan zendigi azadi chants um everybody was waving their own flag i was able to wave my women life freedom flag it's english and farsi um so i didn't get that vibe i mean the section we were in was pre i mean people wanted to take pictures with us with the flag um it, it was very peaceful this was the, the this was the england iran game which of course england ends up winning 6-2 and and she was saying last week when we talked to her that there uh, the english fans were very supportive too of of you know sort of giving high fives and saying yeah was there anyone kind of yelling at you or criticizing you for in terms of the other iran supporters not that game not that game and uh, just out of curiosity because we can't it's so interesting to actually be there. If when you say the stadium, you could hear Maso Amini, Maso Amini, or some of these Zen Zendigi Azadi, would it be clear that the players on the pitch would be able to hear that, would be aware of that? Definitely. It was so loud. It was electrifying. There's no way. There's mm. no way they couldn't hear it. It was loud. And so. So there seems like uh, when you say it's beautiful, you feel like you were there, you got to demonstrate, you you got to sort of express yourself. And um, mind you, I should tell you, I guess friends of yours might have told you this, on the TV feed, we didn't see any of that, right? We just saw right. people with Joe Marie Islami flag and wearing hijabs and we saw none of that. Did you know that we weren't seeing that? I, I, I figured because, uh, you know, they had the big screen um, at the stadium and when the anthem was being played, um, you know, they would they would kind of pan to someone wearing a hijab or they would pan to someone um, crying. Um, and it was it was they I, I never saw any other flag besides the the, you know, Islamic Republic flag. Um, so I figured I, and I, it was I wasn't. I was a little bit surprised, um, you know, I, that's why, you know, I tried to post on my social media, like, sometimes it's not what you see, you have to be there because, you know, the media will just show you what it wants to show you. And that was a lesson that I learned, you know, you always hear about propaganda here, propaganda there, but I really truly felt like I witnessed it firsthand and it was wild. Who were the who were the folks that you were meeting there who were also chanting mass? I mean, um, were they other people from the diaspora? Were there actually some folks you met who had come from Iran who were doing that? Tell me. Yeah, yeah. So we actually we had a huge group um, uh, weeks leading up to uh, to the World Cup. Uh, we have a, a WhatsApp group, uh, Team Melly, um, from everywhere in California. Um, the people that I went with, um, we had about, I would say about five or six from Iran. Um, and it was, uh, you know, they were friends of friends, cousins, you know, and we all just kind of uh, grouped together, gathered together. Um, and it was it was interesting. We were, we were actually a little bit nervous for the ones coming from Iran. You know, like, are you guys going to be okay? Like, you know, how's the situation? Um, and you know, uh, one of the the new people that I met, she said, I went, I came to uh, Qatar without uh, to the airport in Iran without hijab, and it's like, wow, like you hear that, like, if <laughs> nothing happened to you, mm. it's it's truly a, a, a monumental time in uh, Iran's history, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, freedom for them soon. So, so 
Natasha, there's there's this big change that happens, it seems, last week between Game 1 and then Game 2 by Friday morning against Wales, which, of course, the change partly is in the Team Melly, who go from um, sort of not singing the anthem to sort of singing the anthem and celebrating goals. And, and um, of course, the coach comes out swinging at, you know, who are these people who are criticizing us, etc. Uh, but there's also a, a crackdown that happens that we saw a fair bit of footage of, 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 uh, of the Qatari authorities um, really, you know, starting to, 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 to hold the line at anyone being able to demonstrate any kind of uh, suggestion of support for, for a revolution in Iran. So tell me about your experience with this. So it was a complete shock. It was a complete change because prior to the first game, you know, everyone was saying, hide your flags, hide your Zanzindigi Azadi t-shirts, wear something, you know, over it. And it they it, it seemed like they didn't care. We just walked in with with all of it. So the second game I wore my, uh, I had a Massa Amini t-shirt. Um, and so I didn't cover it up. Uh, you know, I was like, first game was fine. So I just attempted to walk right in. And um, the security officer, the police officer, she asked me, you know, because it was in Farsi, she said, "What's on your uh, What's on your shirt?" And I, you know, I try to be an honest person, so I just I just told her what it said, and she which said, "Which is what? No. What does it say?" It said "Women, Life, Freedom," mm-hmm. and it had Massa Amini on it. And um, she said, "No, it's not allowed. This is a political statement. We're not going to let you into the stadium." Um, and I, it was bizarre because I literally was watching people walk into the stadium with similar t-shirts and i i said look my friends are already inside we have matching t-shirts like and i i wore this uh on at the previous game and it was about 10 minutes and then i don't know you know who told her what and she just let me go inside um so that was the first part of it um the second part going into the stadium um i took out my flag the same flag i had on at the previous game which was women life freedom in english and then zan zendigi azadi and uh, on a flag on the flag it was okay. a huge black flag yeah um and and the security officers that were stationed at you know throughout the stadium um they came up to me and told me to put it away one was actually nice he said they're going to take it so just hide it um you know give me kind of a heads up um he's speaking so to you in english up, comes over and says this to you in english yeah 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 next to me and my my other friend that were there and so I put it away for the game. I tried to take it out a couple times, but they were watching me. Um, and we go outside during uh, during halftime, and I just happened to catch this uh, Iranian man uh, talking with the Qatari police. And I go over there. I you know I'm a little bit nosy, and I'm looking. And basically, the Iranian man is uh, he has a video and he's showing the qatari police and basically he's saying these are the people who don't have the correct flags you need to go get them and the qatari police are taking videos of the guy's video and i'm like wow this is like they're 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 out here they're they're shutting everything down and i i'm seeing left and right people's flags just being snatched that that aren't the right flag um crazy were you were you so, so uh, were you ever worried about this i mean in terms of actual fear of something some sort of reprisal so it wasn't until the game ended so you know we're all happy iran had just won it was the last it was the last you know it was stoppage time and the last two goals came in 
And um, so I'm I'm very excited. I bring out my flag again because the players at the end of the game, they go to each corner of the pitch and they're just like clapping to the fans. Um, and I just thought that was a nice gesture. So I like I want them to see my flag. Um, and then a police officer comes uh, comes up to me and um, and he says, let me let me see what's uh, in your hand. I said, I said, leave me alone. I said, the game is over. Um, and he said, let me see what's in your hand. And he's like in my face. And so then he grabs my my arm, like my wrist, and he grabs the flag. Uh, he opens it. He see what, sees what it is. And I said, okay, you saw it. Can I can I have it back now? And he's like, he's in my face, like right right like right up there. This is a cop. He, this is not a sort of usher yeah. at the. Okay. This is a Qatari police officer, six four, huge, um, and he gets in my face and he says, "Do you want to get arrested or do you want to go home?" And, you know, uh, in that moment, you know, I had to not say anything. And I said, please give him my flag. And he, again, he just pushed by me and he said, you want to get arrested or you want to go home? And he, he physically like put his, his hands on me and it was very disturbing. Um, and I was very flustered and I don't get flustered very often. Um, and he took my flag and he, he left. He didn't say where I could get it back. And at this point the game was over and they were still collecting flags um, from anybody who, uh, was displaying them it's pretty shocking isn't it it's not a it's um that doesn't sound like it's just about don't express your politics at at the world cup at the game that's a real crackdown on uh as i've called it that's the bromance between the qatar and 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 the regime um uh you know there's there's a crackdown on any kind of expression of dissent you must have felt that what was the atmosphere um, how was the atmosphere different in terms of other fans at that second game? It was uh, it was tense. I I don't know if it was the section that we were in. Um, you know, it seemed it seemed as though there was there were a lot more uh, regime supporters from uh, the section that we were at. Um, it, it was like within seconds that I took out my flag that someone must have pointed me out, and they came in. They told me to put it away. Um, and it was just uh, there was no chanting during that game. Um, there was it was just it was just soccer. Um, Natasha, there's all kinds of conversation and some evidence that um, um, that they're, they're, the regime brought in a bunch of fans, uh, people to pack the stadium and you know um, show their support, etc. Um, for the team, presumably for the regime, um, was that clear to you somehow? Definitely. And the, the, you know, besides what was happening, the, the people that came to Qatar from all different, you know, countries, they were so nice. Um, you know, and we, we, after the game, we actually met a couple of Americans who wanted to take a picture with us. Um, and they were, my friend asked them, where did you get those flags from? They had the waving flags with, um, the Islamic Republic, you know, the, the main flag right now. And they're like, oh, um, they were just handing, we didn't tell them anything. They said, oh, they, uh, they were just handing them out to us. And they said, hey, just wave this during the game. <laughs> right. And, right. And then we it was an educational opportunity to be like, do you know what this flag stands for? Do you know what's happening in Iran? And they didn't. And that's a lot of people don't know. That's, you know, and so we took that opportunity to to share with them what was happening and their their mouths dropped. They had no idea. Uh, we, we saw all kinds of people that, you know, didn't look Persian, um, you know, uh, just waving the flag and it was it was wow. really wow. eye-opening yeah um I, I, I don't know if you've heard this 
this report that um, it certainly made news in Canada that that the IRGC uh, working with Qatari authorities has a a list of all the Iranian nationals who came to watch the World Cup. Now, I'm assuming that wouldn't count you because you're not an Iranian national. You're somebody of Iranian background, but you're a U.S. citizen or whatever, born in Germany. Um, but d- d- does does something like that, uh, not to alarm you, of course, but I'm sure you've thought this through, does something like that um, give you concern? Um, for me, for myself, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say I'm a nobody, but I'm not on their on their list. Um, I, I, I heard that there was, you know, uh, leaked, like leaked uh, footage, leaked audio between um, between the two governments. I, I listened to that last night um, and it's 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 wild. It's it's just it's corruption at its finest. Um, and, you know, I'm I'm more fearful for the people that um, that have a lot of followers that, you know, have some sort of status um, in Iran. Um, you know, I'm, I'm more fear, fearful for, for for them than than myself. Why did you decide to come home, or was that always the plan? Yeah, that was always the plan. I was only going to be there uh, for a week. Um, you know, um, I was I was uh, in London uh, the week prior, so it was a two week two week trip. Um, you know, and it was it was really eye opening. There was one more incident actually that occurred after the game that I recorded, and it has um, has a lot of views right now on TikTok and a lot of uh, hate speech that's that's kind of coming up. Uh, we we were exiting the stadium and a woman was being detained. Um, she had a, a same same T-shirt, "Women, Life, Freedom," um, and to see her like, I'm not. My gut instinct is never to just oh get out my phone and start recording. Mm-hmm. But in moments like this, you have to show proof. You have to show that look at what's happening, or people won't believe your accounts. And she was crying before I started recording. She was screaming in Farsi, um, you know, Shoharaman Kujas, you know, like, where did they take him? You know, where's my husband? Um, and crying. And um, they, from what we heard and what we saw, so they had, the police had, bar- were locking arms, made, like barricaded her in. And her husband was taken, um, I think it, they said for about four hours um, because he was chanting um, against the regime. Um, and then everybody in the crowd stood, stood, stood with her and, you know, we're chanting in Farsi, you know, we're here, we're not going to leave you. Um, and it was, that was heartwarming to see the people, um, gather around her as well, but it was happening everywhere. All, all my friends that, you know, they have different accounts, their friends, um, being detained, not, not allowed entry into the stadium just for wearing a t-shirt. And my thing is be consistent, right? So if, if there's no political statements allowed due to FIFA policy, then let that be across the board and let us not see the next day at the, you know, uh, Moroccan Belgium game, a huge 60 foot long banner that says free Palestine, which I have no problem with. But if that banner can be shown, then uh, a simple banner saying women, life, freedom can also be shown. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, certainly these, these rules don't seem to be uh, applied. Um, uh, uniformly. Uh, final questions. Yeah, I mean, this is the this is very interesting for me that you said in the beginning that that you still presumably are you still support Team Melly because um, obviously you know that there's many folks who don't, um, and usually folks who are 
many of those folks are people who are outspoken about this revolution and the uprising and wanted to see more from Team Melly and and believe that they have a big platform and this is something that you know like their former teammate Kafuri uh, in uh, in Iran that, that, that that's what you do you put yourself on the line you might get arrested but this is what we need right now in the cause of the revolution um, you're somebody who went to Qatar um, almost got yourself arrested for having a flag but you actually still support the team so tell me about that you know I think that I mean there's a couple of players that I you know don't necessarily agree with um, you know their stance but you know I think that you can support a team and and not not and just not support every like everything that they do. I think that I think that in general, um, I don't know. I think that sometimes, and this might be a controversial statement, but I think sometimes Iranians love to see martyrs, and I you know I, it's okay to it's okay to be happy. It's okay to. I know a lot is happening right now, but we still have to live our lives. We, you can still make your statements. You can still protest. And I feel like they took they took a knee. You know, um, they didn't sing the the national anthem. They have a job. to They do. took a knee. Yeah. The Iran Iran team took a knee at the first game. They did. Yeah, it wasn't shown. Yeah. I didn't see that. I saw the England team taking a knee. Yeah, they all took it together. Um, there's a few photos of it. You mean um, when they were? You mean when they were caucusing? When they were hanging? It was before. This, is that what you before. mean? But that wasn't ta- that wasn't taking a knee, was it? Was it? I mean, in this in the form of like the the sort of spirit of taking the knee. That was like a g- gathering as you do before the game, wasn't it? You know, that, I've heard that as well. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's all about your perspective mm. and the approach that it's being presented to you. Um, so some some. Sh- some choose to believe that's just like a. I didn't see that at the uh, at the Wales game though, so I mean, it, it just it just depends. It's right. it's uh, it's speculation, I guess you can say. Um, but that's that's what we saw. Um, not singing the anthem. That's that's their statement. That's what they're able to do at this point. And then the interviews by the players saying that this is for the people of Iran. You, you can see the emotion, you know, from 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 their eyes and their their body language, and it seems like they're under a lot of pressure. You know, um, it it just really does, and uh, I feel like the Iranian people are are asking a lot of Team Melly, and there's just there's just so much that they can do. Who knows? Who knows what threats are on their family? Who right, knows that their families right. can't leave? But I mean, they are unquestionably under a lot of pressure. I, I, again, the pushback would be, uh, you do great work as a social worker working with kids in in California. There's kids dying in Iran and and being shot in the streets. So um, when you compare that to the pressure being put on a soccer player, it it, it pay uh, you know that kind of pressure pales on, in, in in comparison, right? That would be the the argument. So, so should we have them stop playing? I mean, what's the what's the solution? That's the question. But I mean, they they. Sports can unite people. I, a, this is this this is coming. You know, I played basketball in college at Sacramento State, and I've seen all the the. I just think that there needs to be more unity within the Iranian people. Mm. We need to come together. We don't need to argue about sports. We need to be with the women of Iran. We need to be together, and. We certainly don't need the World Cup to be a distraction. That's the, I, I, I 100% agree with that. So <laughs> with that said, let me ask you one more question about the World Cup. Um, so tomorrow, you're an American, played basketball in the States. You live in, the, in, in California, USA, 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 playing Iran. Tomorrow, what do you do? I'm Team Iran tomorrow. Mm, all right. 
All right. Um, Natasha, I really appreciate you coming and giving your perspective and, and um, what an interesting week you had. What a, what a memory you have and, and um, at times daunting, at times deflating and at times uh, uh, determined. You, you really um, um, painted a great picture for us to get a, a, more of a sense of what, what happened there. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye-bye. This is Rook, episode 219, The Uprising, The Talent of Iranians Will Prevail. Let's stay in California, and Kusha, Kusha Alakband is an Iranian-American professional photographer and a prominent social media personality. She has been very outspoken and active about the ongoing revolution in Iran and the movement for change. And she's been so outspoken that her very popular Instagram account has been blocked and shadow banned with some regularity. Right now, Kusha Alarban joins me from Newport Beach, California. Hello. Hi, Gian. Nice How are you doing? I'm okay. It's nice to have you back on the show. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me, Gian. Uh, I, I, let me start with just how the last couple of months has been for you. I mean, your your social media, you're, you're prolific and you're popular, and, and your social media used to be a mix of social advice, helpful tips, fun posts, caring conversations. Now it's almost all revolution all the time. How, how does that feel for you? Uh, I don't know what happened there. I really don't know. One day I was minding my own business and, um, you know, being a mom and uh, uh, a professional photographer and living my life and traveling. And the next thing we know, we're just sort of thrown into this journey. And I think that uh, I think for all of us, there's a lot of uh, collective trauma that's being all brought up and um, we're taking this very personally. Mm. So I take it very personally. So I, I don't know how I got thrown into this because as you know, me, I'm, I'm like, a lot of other people, I'm not a very political person, you know, but in this situation, you can't help it when you see so many kids are dying just to protest for their basic rights and so, so many atrocities are happening. You just can't, you, you can't sit back. I mean, because you've been so outspoken, have you, was it a, a conversation you had with your family to sort of say, okay, this is something I'm going to do? I mean, how, how, 
pre-planned was it or did you just sort of did it just start happening where you you wanted to start speaking out because that's what you do on your your platforms yeah i did not want to speak up i really didn't um i because i keep my page apolitical i don't like to talk about anything that has to do with religion or politics it's just like a feel-good page we come in here you know people come in there to get a little bit of inspiration and motivation and I didn't want to ever, uh, you know, talk about anything that might seem divisive. Um, but when this happened, and given that I had been spending a lot of time in Iran, just and I had just gotten back two weeks prior to Masad Amini's death, I, I, you know, it was very personal for me, and I had to make a conscious. I had to sit down and think. Okay, if I'm going to be vocal about this, there is a chance that I may never be able to go back to Iran. And anyone that knows me knows how much I love Iran, how much I love going back there. It's like the highlight of my year. I'd rather be in Iran than anywhere else in the world. And so I cried, I cried a good cry. I sat and I you know, really had to um, work it out for myself and then made that decision for myself. I didn't even discuss it with anyone. I didn't discuss it with my family because I wasn't sure if they were going to try to talk me out of it. When you say that, um, you've said a couple of times now that the, the killing of Massa Amini was, was personal for you. Um, t- tell me why. Um, I'm a mom. You know, I just imagine my daughter being in the same situation. I also got uh, stopped by the morality police the last day I was in Iran. Hmm. And um, and that was really traumatic for me. It was traumatic. And I had done nothing wrong. I had the full hijab on. Ironically, that was the only day where I had the full hijab on in the couple months that I was there. And I was stopped and the whole experience was terrifying and I felt it, I, I felt violated. And um, so I felt the need that, you know, and I thought about this girl that was visiting Tehran. She probably didn't know the language very well. She was a guest. And what happened to her was just beyond imaginable. How has it, um, how has your relationship with your sizable audience uh, been affected by you being more outspoken? I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of the, those folks that, uh, um, are really energized and and informed by what you're doing, but uh, I'm, there's probably people who were following you before that didn't follow you for politics. What do you say to them? Ever since I started being vocal about what was going on in Iran, I think it has endeared me more to, to my audience. They, I, the messages that I get unanimously are like, Kusha, we liked you. You were great. We enjoyed what you were wearing, but we love you now. We love you. And that's the overwhelmingly what I'm getting. I'm, I'm not getting any hate mail. I'm not getting any, I got a couple threats from, I don't know who, but overall um, it's been an incredible experience. And I think that this, um, this has really brought a lot of people closer to one another, if anything. We feel like a family. We feel like we have this shared pain that we, and this shared, trauma that we're experiencing together so yeah. only we know what we're feeling no one else can understand that's for sure and uh, so i mean it's 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 always nice to have you on the program but one of the precipitants for this conversation was the fact that you've been 
um, quite vocal in in recent weeks about the fact that your account, your Instagram account, which is um, it, it, it's a, a significant platform, you know, you're one of those people who has a really big following, uh, has been at times suppressed. Uh, at other times, I mean, at one point you were locked out of it. I remember about three or four weeks ago, and I was yes, telling you the I same kind locked. of thing was was happening to us. So, first of all, tell us what happened, and then what you've learned about why this is happening. Well, the first time that I noticed that there was definitely a change in my account is when I my lives were blocked. And the reason that my lives were blocked, I was, I think I was shadow banned because I tried a couple hashtags and it wouldn't go through. And um, so your lives were blocked, I, meaning your when you do live appear, you when do I tried to do a live, a live on, on Instagram, right? Yeah. It's blocked for now. Right. Try later. And then I noticed that I was um, disqualified from monetizing my reels. So that was, I, I was no longer eligible for monetizing my reels. Um, and what I found out was that I posted stories about exactly what I just told you that I talked about, about getting uh, getting pulled over or caught by the morality police. I, ex I explained my whole experience and I was reported by the cyber army. And I think the word police or whatever might have triggered the algorithms or bots or whatever that they have in place. And so they immediately blocked me. They blocked my lives and they made me ineligible for monetizing my reels. So that went on for about a week and a week and a half. And I had a couple of friends in Meta that looked into it. No one could give me an answer. Finally, the lives uh, were, I was available to go on live again. But then after a couple of weeks, as I was posting stories, all of a sudden I was locked out of my Instagram account. And so my IG was shut for a week and a half. I kept sending numerous emails, which and by, I found and by, out and later. And by the way, the, by the way, this stuff has not really happened before with with any certainly with any regularities. You right? Never, never. So this is so it's it's certainly conspicuous that you start talking about Iran, and mm -hmm. uh, you know you start for the first time really actively being you know anti this regime in Iran on your your platforms, and all of a sudden these things are happening. It's yeah. a it's a little too conspicuous for comfort, right? I, I don't think this is a coincidence because I've been active on Instagram for many years and this had never happened to me in the past, ever. Never had an issue. A friend of mine, uh, an American friend of mine, she's actually mm, sort of a celebrity. She, I forward this poor girl one of the Iran posts. She posts it and she gets shadow banned. She gets shadow banned. And I know this because every time I try to mention it, it says this account has been shadow banned. So she sends me a note yesterday. She says, Kusha, I look at your posts and I'm outraged. Uh, the censorship, the killings, the atrocity is going on. But we've got plenty of censorship here. I posted one of your posts. I got shadow banned. But I don't care. Send me whatever you got. I'll yeah. post it no matter what. So this is no coincidence. This is definitely happening to a lot of the Iran content out there content related to Iran. And I knew, by the way, I didn't even know if I had been hacked mm. or if Instagram had suspended my account. I got no notification. I just couldn't access my account. So everyone else could see my account, but I couldn't. I had no access to it.
And so I was told that I was reported by one too many, an army of people and um, that they had no idea. I mean, Meta was not giving me any information. I had to go through people that worked for Meta and they tried to get information, but for a week, week and a half, they kept saying, you know, we keep opening these internal tickets for you. And the person that is supervising it is just saying, I don't really have time to look look it over. Hmm. Yeah, so I don't know what the deal was. So do you think that, um, and, and then more recently, again, this week, you were saying that, then what happened this week? Um, this week, I posted some stories about, you know, I've been focusing a lot on the nationwide strikes and boycotts and products that are related to the Sepah, Sepah Pastoran, that benefit the Sepah Pastoran and Seda Osima, which is the national TV. So products that give advertisements, you know, it's the place at the people, companies that place advertisements, they would sit Osimo or that are somehow connected with the SEPA. So that's really been our focus. And I, along with a lot of other people, believe that the nationwide strikes are the Achilles heel of this regime. If they're held for a month and if every, you know, if the nationwide um, strikes are all, all, you know, they spread, this regime is going to be in trouble. Well, I keep posting stories about that to inform people. And I noticed that my stories were removed. And once again, I was shadow banned. And the reason I knew I was shadow banned is because I would post something. And let's say I get 3000 likes. If I even post a picture of a tree, I get 3000 likes mm-hmm. in an hour. I was getting 100 likes. And I knew that that wasn't so my my, my posts were not being seen yeah. by anyone. Yeah, yeah. And my story views were one fifth of what they used to be. Yeah. So I realized that I was shadow banned, and then I got a notice uh, from Instagram showing me the stories that had been removed. Well, this time, the stories that had been removed, there was not one word in there that would have violated community guidelines. It was just about the nationwide strikes and boycotts. Now, if I, I told people, don't go to the mall this week, don't shop, that's that's an option. Is that violating community guidelines? You're saying, to say, you're, say saying you're saying to people in Iran that you think that they should avoid yeah. going on. Yeah, I said, you avoid, please avoid malls this week. Don't go shopping. Don't buy anything that's not necessary. So if that's considered, I mean, this is the first, I mean, I, I don't know if that's considered violating guide, community guidelines, but that's exactly what was in the content of what was removed. So do, do you think that this is some automatic, as you said earlier, bots or, or some algorithm that responds to certain catchwords or something? Or do you think that there are... Um, you know, we 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 know uh, we've we've had many conversations about there being thousands of IRGC agents, you know, uh, all over the world, including in North America, and and so so, and you're pretty high profile in terms of being one of those people who, you know, uh, posts things that get a lot of traction. That somehow you are actually being targeted, or or do you think it's more a more automatic thing that just triggers somehow? I know I'm being targeted because I know that I'm on a lot of these telegram pages with these cyber armies where they, you know, attack one person, they, they notify, oh, this person made a post, go and, you know, report them. So I know I'm on several of those accounts, I've been told. Um, so I know I'm a target that way. I 
did think that this was just some sort of a like an automatic trigger like there's a word that instagram's triggered by but i also know that they review like when you submit a review a person reviews your stories so if they're reviewing my stories they should know that these are not violating community guidelines what, what? So i don't know but i was just told that um and then i read an article about this that uh, i guess it was a bbc article back in may yeah and and, and i'm you read that article yeah 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 we've talked about it yeah i mean that's where yeah, the shadow banning have yeah. been yeah. have been bribed by people in you know islamic republic to take down accounts or mess with accounts or hack accounts so this is a known fact this is fact checked and you know it, it wasn't i'm assuming that that's legit if it was in bbc and you you haven't been able to talk to anybody at instagram at meta to to say this is what's happening kusha this is why this is uh, occurring i i i talked to a couple people in meta and they couldn't give me any answers they really didn't know that they were just at, at a loss they're like we don't know what's going on and then i found out that meta actually i guess they hired a third party the company telus mm that does all their filtering for them so and i haven't really read about i just found this out yesterday so i didn't find that much information as to how they go about um filtering these stories so i, I have no idea but there's got to be something there well it's also i mean it's interesting to me that you know, you can post something that says the hell, the, the hell with this regime. But then if you're posting about strikes, that that gets shadow banned. Like that's a, it, these are very particular kind of um, posts that are, I mean, the stuff about you getting blocked before because there was a bunch right. of people reporting, that seems like paid by numbers to me. Okay, they send a bunch of, they put a cyber army on you and you get reported and then Instagram has to take a few days to go, no, she's actually legit, it's okay. I mean, that's that doesn't seem like... Like rocket science but this stuff that we've experienced too where certain posts get suppressed is really quite macabre you know it feels uh, it's it's quite orwellian um i think that certain posts just get uh, reported more than others and um i was on a live yesterday and a gentleman came up he claimed that he worked for meta and he did have a theory that for example one of my stories, um, the content uh, was about specific companies that should be boycotted. And he thought that, well, you know, one way to look at it was these companies could be paying advertisement money to Facebook or Meta or something like that. Right. So, but, but then I don't know because aren't there sanctions? So how can that be? So I don't know. I don't know. How freaked out are you about this stuff? Um, I was really freaked out before, but I really am not. I try to just be very, very meticulous and intentional about the content that I post and I talk about, mm. and, um, and I just take it from there. We know, of course, um, famously, this is a this is a. Um, and, and amazingly, this is a, um, a women-led revolution, uh, particularly young women, young girls in some case, uh, in, in inspiring uh, the world. I know a lot of your audience uh, is female, and a lot of them are in Iran. 
Um, before I let you go, tell me what you're hearing from them. Um, all I'm hearing from them is this. Thank you so much for being my voice. Thank you so much for not forgetting us. We depend on you guys to amplify our voice. And that's all they want. They just want us out in the diaspora to be their voice. That's it. Yeah, this it's it's interesting, you know, because once in a while I'll get, not once in a while, I mean, quite regularly, we'll get sort of people saying, and I, I can't tell if it's an excuse for their own inaction or if they just genuinely are, don't know, if, but they say, well, what, what good is this? What are these, you know, you guys talking, you're sitting in Toronto or Newport Beach and or you're going on these demonstrations in Western cities, who cares? The regime isn't going to listen to this. And what I try to tell them is, you know, when we've had our Voices Inside Iran series, every single person that we've asked, you know, and I ask them all, I, I sort of, whenever I interview somebody who's in Iran on the front lines of the demonstrations, and I'll say to her, does this make a difference what we're doing? Should we continue? And they say, yes, yes absolutely. Yes. It gives us inspiration. It gives us strength. It puts pressure on. So uh, I, I, I guess that's what you're hearing. It makes all the difference. In the two, three months that I've been doing this, I've realized every little thing that we do in the diaspora makes all the difference. We are giving the freedom fighters in Iran a lot of hope a lot of inspiration. We are amplifying their voice here. We are conducting pressure campaigns, putting pressure on politicians and media outlets, you know, to amplify the voice of the freedom fighters in Iran. And this is no small task. And we've all united together and we're doing a great job. And I think that one of this, 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 uh, also this narrative that, um, you know, oh, you guys are outside, you guys are the Iranians in the diaspora, and what do you know? This is a Islamic Republic play, putting people against each other. We're all Iranians. We all want the best for Iran, and every single person is putting their foot forward, trying to do whatever they can for a free Iran. So I don't buy this narrative of Iranians in the diaspora. Iran yes, we, at this point, are task is to be their voice because they're doing the real fighting and we're fighting enemies outside we're fighting a lot of different people outside so we we're all working together it's not us versus them it's all of us together thank you for this i appreciate your 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 persistence your 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 um you're so prolific in terms of uh, the energy that you have. You're, I mean, you're always, you've got a lot of content coming out and I think a lot of people really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you making the time to talk about this uh, today. Thanks for doing this, Kusha. Thanks, Gian. You, ca you caught me on a day when I'm like, at my lowest energy. I've been up since two o'clock posting stories. I keep, I feel like I need to keep up and, you know, um, spread as much information as possible and, you know, inform everyone in Iran and outside of Iran, because what we're doing in Iran is, you know, uh, sharing a lot of information that they might not be able to share with one another. Or they're not get they're not getting on state television. That's for sure. They yeah. can they yeah. can get it on state television, and they can share because they're gonna they're gonna get arrested. So they slip it to us, and we're the ones that are you right, know dispensing right, or sharing right. this information. And then outside, we're bringing more we're bringing more awareness as to what kind of news to share what to share what not to share what's fake news what's not hmm. so 
It's wearing many hats. Well, pace yourself. I mean, I feel like you're the person who would usually uh, would, would be the person who who would do a uh, a post at some point about how everybody's got to you know uh, d- don't burn yourself out. Don't uh, I mean uh, it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. So take care of yourself. It is. it is. I'm just having a hard time practicing what I usually preach. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Jan. Bye, Kusha. Bye. is Rook, episode 219, The Uprising. We're back here in the Rook studio for my next guest, Dr. Feridun Rahmani. He's an associate professor at York University here in Toronto, Canada. His research focuses on critical human rights in the Middle East, social exclusion, justice, war, violence, ethnicity, social policy, and quality of life. His most recent book, published in 2020, is entitled Rooftop Societies, The Middle East Paradox. He is an expert in Kurdish affairs. And right now, Dr. Feridun Rahmani, joins me in the Rook studio. Hello, sir. Hello. Good to be here. Good to have you back. I mean, we normally wouldn't be, with all due respect, we wouldn't have you back so soon. Um, We had you here um, just this past month, but events are dictating uh, the necessity and the urgency of these conversations, um, particularly the situation in Kurdistan. And so we wanted to bring you back as quickly as we could to get your sense of things and perhaps some insight from you if you know folks on the ground there. First of all, um, what did you think when you saw those horrific images of tanks um, going from Tehran towards Kurdistan, towards Mahabad last week? Um, it is sad. We have seen this scenery, uh, scenery when I was 16 and it was a revolution. I was 15 and 16 years old, a young boy uh, in 1979, 1980s, when the jihad against the Kurdish population uh, uh, initiated. And I saw the same ro- rolling of the uh, uh, tanks on the streets in Kurdistan from Sanandaj Mahabad and other cities. And uh, still is the same scena- uh, scenario. And uh, this time is were more equipped uh, and uh, um, uh, um, uh, sophisticated uh, machineries, uh, drones and rockets and things all around the region. And it's horrible. It's horrible that uh, such thing in a 21st century, in a time of uh, where uh, intelligence, um, uh, artificial intelligence is prevailing of entire aspects of life of the people, and the 
international community uh, is calling for human rights, women's rights, and uh, everyone's rights. And that's happening in, in Iran. It's yeah. sad. It's, it's really saddened. As I described it last week, it's, it's, it's warfare. It's a war. Uh, people have been saying, well, this is different. R- Russia, Ukraine is different. It's not, it's not that different. It's just that the war is happening inside the borders in yeah. this case. The, the, yeah. the state is sending uh, uh, tanks into, uh, you know, yeah. kill Iranian people. Um, one of the things that complicates it, uh, Faridun, is, is that we, w- it's really hard to get information out of, out of what, what's going on in, in Mahabharata. Just before you came today, I spent the morning doing my best to try and figure out what's going on. Just from the resources, reaching out to a couple of people, going through my news reports, any, any of that going on in social media. And there really isn't, I mean, somewhere between the internet crackdown and the fact that it's not one of these urban epicenters like Tehran or, or Mashhad, it's really hard to get information about what's happening. Do you have any update on what is going on in Kurdistan? Yeah, definitely. First of all, I want to say that, um, go back to the previous uh, talking, um, uh, the, 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 the war in Ukraine and Russia is a two-states war and two uh, uh, teams of uh, completely sophisticated, uh, equipped with sophisticated machineries yeah. and war. Here in Iran is a state with all uh, technologies and uh, uh, psychology of uh, destruction. Uh, the other side is innocent, voiceless, powerless, uh, young people from the most uh, neglected part of the country, one of the most neglected uh, regions in, in Iran. Kids with stones. Uh, with stones. Yeah. They have only their hands, stones and uh, bloods to give. Uh, they have uh, no machineries, nothing in their hand. And uh, the, the internet is worse. If you want to call Tehran, it's most likely you go through. In Kurdistan, is no way that you can go through most of the times. So the, the internet is down. Uh, the the com- communication is down. The internet is uh, and the communication system is completely uh, controlled by a state. Um, uh, the people other side of the border, they have nothing and they don't have any feeling most of the time to support the people inside the Kurdistan in Iran. Uh, uh, the, 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 there is no, uh, no, no support nowhere. Uh, the, the situation is very deteriorating. It's very bad. People are dying. Many, many, many people I know, I, uh, I talk to my friends at Hangao or other uh, organizations, human rights organizations, and uh, the even political, non-political organizations, the situation is very bad. People, they are uh, really have no money in um, families they have no bread on the table. The, the shops are completely closed. Uh, there are uh, stores that are closing down just because they cannot afford the, the rent mm-hmm. anymore. They are not. Uh, uh, they are not having any flow of money coming in. Uh, they are relying with um, uh, small uh, funds coming from the daily transactions, and that has been eliminated because of the strikes and uh, uh, demonstrations. What What is the regime's <coughs> strategy here? I mean, the narrative is. <coughs> The greatest pocket of unrest is Kurdistan. That's where the people have been the most resilient and out in the streets and trying to, and 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 demonstrating. Of course, Masa Amini herself was uh, an Iranian Kurd, uh, and so the regime wants to crush it, and that's the idea. And let's stand in the tanks and the military. Is it as simple as that? Is that the strategy? 
Definitely. Uh, we have seen in uh, 2012, uh, I was in Iraq when, when I saw how the tanks and Hashd uh, al-Shaabi, Hashd al-Watani from Iraq, uh, equipped by Iranians, they are passing the Iraqi-Syrian borders. Uh, I, I was going uh, in the University of Mosul also to teach some of the uh, classes, sometimes from the hook. And I realized uh, hundreds of thousands of people prior, prior, uh, even the, the, the peak of uprising, they were equipping. Uh, um, they, 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 they were preparing the state, the, the Bashar Assad. And this has happening since day one. They, they, uh, they kept Bashar Assad in power with the cost of Iranian uh, budget and uh, uh, cost of the living uh, condition of the Iranians. But I promise you, this, this is their own uh, sitting place. They are not giving it away that easy. We will have a hard time, and uh, definitely that's their plan. But the problem is they want to do it in a lesser expensive in, in terms of international relation and uh, all those connections they have. They have local friends now. The Europeans, they are gone almost. The only Who six have local friends? Uh, the, 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 the Iranians the still. They have, they, they have Qatar. They have uh, oh, Emirates. They local have friends. the local, right, right, right. local. Plus, they have few uh, corrupt international ideological regimes like Cuban regime right. or uh, China or Russians. The ones that voted no to the resolution. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are, uh, they, they have been always with Iran. Iranian regime, Venezuela, and all those countries. Uh, I think uh, I think now uh, regime wants to is is pre, uh, is trying to not to lose those ones as well. The mm. most corrupt international uh, countries, uh, international community organizations or countries, they want to keep those in in the bond. They don't want to lose Russia or lose lose China because they know there is a border. There, there is a uh, borderline. Uh, if they pass that, then it's gonna be worse. But uh, I don't think they they, they 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 care much about that as well. If that the time comes, definitely it will be worse than Bashar Assad regime. In terms of the resilience of the people of Kurdistan. Um, Everybody says, you know, uh, we've been talking about this for two months now about how things are different this time, not just in Kurdistan, but but for you know all of Iran, different from Aban. This time, no crackdown, no threat of executions, etc., is stopping the will of the people to keep demonstrating. But is that what you're hearing from from the ground? I mean, is is um, is it the case that even when they're bringing in tanks and bombing and, and uh, murdering people that that there's a, a resilience to go on or is this crackdown actually having an effect? Uh, I, I, I speak of uh, in Kurdistan region by, based on my information, the, 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 the people, the, uh, the young generations, uh, they are 40 percent or more or less uh, of the population. They don't want to give up. They have no uh, no choice, and the, the the parents they know if they give up and they, everything is controlled by regime again, everybody gonna be de dead. They won't have any really uh, normal life as, uh, right. as, as at this point. There's no option. It's, it's no option. It's no option, and it's gonna be a horrible scenery of uh, undercover genocide and crime again. And we need we need the support from all all layers of the. Country. So how, what about the support from inside Iran? So I, I, this is something I brought up with Bahman Obadi last week. So we hear the chants from places like Tehran and other places saying that we're behind you, Kurdistan. We see this as we're all one unified country, which all feels very good. But um, um, Mr. Obadi's position on that last week was 
well, that's nice, but chanting from the windows is not going to help at this point. Everybody needs to get out on the streets, or this is going to be a case of divide and conquer where the regime goes and, and, and suppresses Kurdistan and then goes to Balochistan next and one by one uh, crushes this whole um, uprising, this revolution. What is your feeling about the unity, the support from inside Iran for, for Kurdistan? I know that from heart, many pe- many people they are with Kurdistan. They are they, they are really understanding the need of the unity, and uh, they they understand to they have to support people from Tehran and uh, from Isfahan and Shiraz. They are calling that can we uh, find a way that we can go to Kurdistan and fight there, or we want to f- send money there, or we want to send uh, medications. Uh, everybody, every single day, I get calls from the from the uh, outside Kurdistan in Iran mm-hmm. and. And this is great. Uh, chanting, the, even here, demonstrations are focusing on Tehran, uh, in Kurdistan from all other parts of Iran. This is not enough. We need the people, the Iranians, especially. I, I believe this revolution will be mm, successful only with the power of the center. Tehran, Isfahan, Shiraz, Tabriz. Those uh, over a million uh, population cities. Serious. The, the Jawan Road is not even a hundred thousand, hundred hundred fifty thousand. I don't know exactly the date data, but it's around mm-hmm. hundred something thousand population. Everybody knows each other. The security forces exactly they find out who and where they are living. That's why they go in the night. They kill them. They take them to jail or they they destroy their homes because everybody knows each other. Easily they can mm-hmm. crack down and uh, arrest them and kill them. But in Tehran is not the case. We, we we don't we just we just need everybody for five days to come on the street. Don't go to work. Come on the uh, come on the street. Just walk on the street. Just uh, close your shop and go some other cities. Uh, Tehran. Uh, uh, people from Tehran, they should go to Shiraz and just close down the, the whole stores. Uh, just go for a vacation in Isfahan and Shiraz. Just walk on the street. Uh, this is this is the way we can we can crack down on the people uh, and uh, uh, crack down the the the, the, the um, take the, down the, the regime. Uh, the 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 other thing is that uh, support from uh, outside as well. Uh, we we need more support from. Uh, uh, from community we have to um, not only the support uh, we need to unify ourselves the opposition is behind I tell think- me about that I know this is something you've been frustrated about the you you believe there should be more there should be an acceleration of the 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 plan to to unify the opposition in the diaspora uh, so that we've been talking about this for three or four weeks now that the idea was floated of some kind of a council or some kind of a um, committee or something that's made up of some of the prominent opposition uh, um, lead figures who have been uh, prominent uh, so far in the last couple of months. Is that something you're advocating? Uh, that's one of them. But uh, actually, uh, the f- 43 years the old opposition, they haven't uh, really united themselves, even within their own uh, atmosphere. Right. Uh, be it left, right, middle, center, whatever. But right now there's a rumor that there, there are people, five, six, ten, whatever, they want to unify themselves and do something. I, I understand frustration and uh, the, the issues some of people and friends they may may have, but 
this doesn't help us. We have to not only to accelerate that thing, we have to diversify that things in a higher level. Uh, let's, we have great uh, Iranian uh, diverse community leaders mm -hmm. all around mm -hmm. uh, Europe and Canada and US. They have to uh, sh um, give hands together. This is a time to speak up. This is a time to influence international policy and diplomatic uh, relations around the world. The Iranian, they are spending billions of dollars to do to prevent and separate us from each other. Uh, I am frustrated in terms of those leadership is really uh, spending that much of time on drinking coffee and talking not doing actions, mm. we need really actions. Uh, I have been discussing with many, many of my friends. Those, those are just giving the directions. They are giving support, representing uh, our Iranian suffering community. They could, they are not the ones might establish a government in future, but they can get advice, get get communication right. with the international community. Uh, and I don't like it if the people, they say I'm not political. We are all political. The Middle Eastern and Islamic world, since they don't have democracy and freedom, we are all political. We are not uh, really s civil activists only. We are, um, you know, we are political. Till like Canadians, we have to, or uh, human rights and uh, fundamental rights mm -hmm, is settled. Mm -hmm. Then we can say, say I'm not political. We are not maybe uh, political party oriented or member of a political party. That's fine. But all of us, we are political. Right. Nothing wrong. I don't with know that. if it's totally settled in Canada either, by the way. But uh, but compar relative. comparatively, uh, relative, yes, of course. Relative. Yes. Uh, one thing I, I have been discussing at York University right now with my f uh, many professors and few few people from outside is to establishing a, if you allow me to say it, is a meso-level uh, professional and academician uh, engineers, whatever you call it, professionals alliance. Not to uh, uh, um, uh, struggle to take control of political power in future, mm -hmm. but giving advice and support to the leadership on top be it now is this getting established or right, in right. future we need a meso level professional alliance for uh, making connection from the lower and top in future also giving directions right. for establishing a new democratic iran we need the people to give advice on the human rights we need the people to give advice on the uh, economic developments uh, the, all disparities and issues and discrepancies we have in future all has to be professionally discussed and talked and we have to uh, build the alliance right now and this is important one of the things i guess one of the reasons why um it, it would be helpful to have a united opposition of some kind is that uh for at least the west uh, there would be some uh, there would be a, a a place or to go in terms of um, the messaging. There would be a spokesperson or, or some kind of um, unity in the, in messaging because right now there's a there's a bunch of people in a bunch of different countries saying a bunch of different things, um, and that's problematic. The danger, of course, or the the people have a who have a reflex um, concern about this uh, is um, in, in terms of the way it's been expressed to me is the experience of 1979 and 1978. You know, everybody came together and said, "Okay, well, let this guy, the mullah, this, this Ayatollah guy, be the 
you know, the 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 symbolic uh, leader for now, and then we'll after the revolution we'll work it all out. And we don't we know that that didn't work. Uh, the 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 mullahs consolidated power, etc. So there's a fear of what happens next if we if 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 everybody unifies. How do you respond to that? Oh, that's why. I- uh, I tell you, we have too many layers of co- coalition and alliances. The women's alliances should be involved. The, the, the young generation, Generation Z, has to have unify itself and establish a kind of a organizations. The, 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 the authors and uh, pen group of Iranians, mm-hmm. the, the artists, the media, the, the teachers, the, the workers, or the professors at universities, they have to. Do, we had last week for Kurdistan Democracy demonstration and I am really pissed off the the only Dr. Moridi and I I was there we had more than 250 professors at York University and UFD and Ryerson not even five professors they were present there I it, it it's 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 no good we are we are teaching our generations to to make them aware of their real life mm. and prepare them to to be active in the all aspects of life we are not daring to come to to show the solidarity, not for Kurdistan. Forget about the Kurdistan. Promise you, Kurdistan is they, the people. They know what to do. They're gonna get rid of this regime at least uh, with support of uh, f- uh, support of uh, Iranians of other parts. But we we need to be their ways. We need to be with them. That the, during the 1978 and 79 revolution, because everybody's uh, intentionally they shut their mouth and they made their their blind and. Uh, they, they were not hearing what's going on. Mm-hmm. The Khomeini told at the beginning that we are Islamic. We, we are going to have an Islamic regime. My father. Khomeini is a said a lot of things, including he, "I'm not interested in power." But uh, uh, <laughs> he he said we want an Islamic regime. Mm-hmm. He he wanted for Islam, and everybody knew that the Islamic regime is Abu Alamodudi in Pakistan, is Saudi Arabia, and other countries. We, 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 we knew all, but we, we closed our eyes, we didn't listen, and uh, the, the problem is in the most liber- liberalistic, most democratic, and most leftist activists and ideologists, they, they bundle up yeah. just to be against Americans. Yeah. Now is not the, the same situation. We should not be afraid. Let's everybody with all layer of uh, thinking come be part of it. We have civic societies in Iran right now. Women, they are active. Young generations, they are active. The, the workers, they are active. The teachers, they are active. We need only the, the environment. If mm. the environment's opened up, promise you, not political parties will be only half of it. The other half will be those civic organizations we have. We have it. In the Middle East, we are the, the, the one of the best leading into this month, this climate. Let me uh, ask you a final question and uh, a, a personal one. I, I, uh, I'm name-checking him a lot here, but because we were speaking about this situation in Kurdistan and he was only on last week, uh, Bahman Gubadi, at the end of the interview, I said, are you hopeful? And he said, it, it was actually quite um, de- depressing, his answer. He said, um, I was, up until the last few days, uh, this crackdown on Kurdistan uh, and the lack of, of response from the rest of Iran in a really tangible way in terms of people getting out on the streets, as you've been saying, uh, has affected uh, his, his sense of hope. Um, the same question to you. I mean, are, do you, uh, where are you, how are you feeling now, nine weeks into this? For sure. Ten, I, ten weeks, wherever we are. I, I'm not hope- hopeless. I'm very hopeful. 
uh, I, I am positive. I, I, I respect Jian Kagbahman uh, uh, is one of my friends. I, I invited him 2004, 2005, or around that time to come here for uh, program. And he, he remembers, hopefully, and we are sometimes communicating. But um, this is frustrating what is going on right now. Uh, I don't blame the, the, the young generations they are right now in Tehran or Isfahan or Shiraz, other cities. I blame the, the parents. Uh, the, the, the ones are 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. They, they, they had problems. They, they were going every single day uh, protesting for their uh, incomes or yeah. um, all the um, things they have, but they are not speaking up right now. They have to back up. In Kurdistan, all the generations, yeah. young generations, uh, mothers, fathers, grandparents, they are with the young people. We need the same uh, thing in, in, in Tehran. If Tehran gets up, Tehran gets up, courage gets up together, promise you, we will take the Iran back. I'm not uh, hopeless, uh, but I'm upset with the Iranians outside, even including the Kurdish that we are not doing the job we should do from outside. And not, not by being unified. We're not being unified. Exactly. Unified and doing something together. Uh, it's three months now. The people are dying. Yeah. And we don't need to this be continued another three months. We have to finish it within the next few few weeks. And if we unify yourself, we, we uh, knock on each single door international community. Why UNESCO has to be quiet? Why United Nations has to be quiet? It's our fault first because we are not unified. We don't have a voice. Those Iranians, they are dying on the street. They need their voice be raised by us. It's our responsibility. No matter is your mic or X or Y uh, website or gotcha. uh, art, yeah. we have to unify ourselves and work together. Dr. Feridun Rahmani, it's always, a, always good to see you and uh, I always appreciate your insights. Thanks for this. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Feridun Rahmani, Associate Professor at York University and the author of the book, Rooftop Societies, The Middle East Paradox. He is, of course, an expert on Kurdish affairs. This is full time for Rook for today. Thank you so much to all of our guests who uh, came on the show. Thanks to Pagan Shaya for the roundtable. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Um, Savvy Roham, Anahita, Parisa, Pega, Merton, and Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us, sharing our content, subscribing. Please do subscribe if you have not done so already on any or all of our platforms. You can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. And as ever, see you Thursday. Please don't